Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. As always, how are you, EC? I'm good. How are you doing? Fantastic. We are going to discuss today another diet book, uh, which we've done in the past. I think we've, if I take a wild guess, we've done two or three of these where we're just kind of very specifically looking at a diet book, which is obviously always advocating for a specific diet. So I guess really what we're saying is we're going to look at a specific diet. Um, Mm -hmm. And this time around, we're going to do one called the uh, Longevity Diet by Walter Longo, Mm -hmm. V-A-L-T-E-R-L-O-N-G-O. So can we first, we've got a bunch to talk about here, but can you just give us like a high level uh, sense of like, what is the longevity diet? Like, what do we need to know about it so that you and I can have a conversation? Yeah, yeah, super high level. It's basically in line with the questions that I get about low protein diets, cancer, and longevity, because these are kind of some of the big concepts that are brought up in this longevity diet book. And, you know, a very high level, um, like most other books that we've discussed or other diets that we've discussed, there are some things that I agree with. Generally, these statements are the ones that fall in line with my 10 principles of nutrition. And then there's some statements or conclusions that are just completely wrong, you know, and this, this book is no different. There, there were times I was like, yes, exactly. This is awesome. And then woven right next to sentences where I was just thinking, huh? (laughs) So hopefully with this podcast, we're not going to do kind of a blow by blow of the book, just getting a little bit more into the specifics around the recommendations I disagree with, but maybe we should start with kind of just a general overview, uh, briefly to get on the same page. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So there are in the book uh, nine different recommendations uh, that sort of underpin the longevity diet. So I'm just going to go through each one. Uh, I'm just going to list each one and then we'll kind of dive into uh, some of them more specifically. So there are nine. Number one, follow a pescatarian diet. Number two, consume low but sufficient protein. Number three, minimize bad fats and sugars and maximize good fats and complex carbs. Number four, be nourished. Number five, eat a variety of foods from your ancestry. Number six, eat twice a day plus a snack. Number seven, observe time-restricted eating. Number eight, practice periodic prolonged fasting. And number nine, follow the uh, prior eight points in such a way that you reach and maintain a healthy weight and abdominal circumference. Okay. So uh, we've talked about a handful of those before, but are there any that um, you agree with, or maybe that uh, you use as your own recommendations or that you don't use as your own recommendations, but like you feel like, yeah, okay, I can, you know, shoulder shrug, not gonna, not gonna die on that hill. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, we have talked about a bunch of these before and how a bunch of these can help people lose weight or be healthier. I mean, even number one, you know, follow a pescatarian diet. It's, it's basically saying eat all plant-based foods, plus some seafood. He also allows for some protein in there. And it's like, can you be healthy doing this? Yeah, of course. Would a lot of people be more healthy following a diet like this instead of our current way of eating? Yep, of course. But do you need to avoid all animal products, including red meat and other types of non-seafood meats to be healthy? No, not at all, right? So if you choose to do kind of a pescatarian, more plant-based diet and cover your nutritional bases and you like it, 
more power to you. But is it also more restrictive than it needs to be and possibly cutting out foods that can really help round out somebody's nutritional needs? Yeah, totally. Mm. And then there's other ones. Like, of course, I agree, cut down on processed foods, which is basically number three, you know, minimize bad fats and sugars. Um, Number five, I don't think you need to eat a variety of foods specifically from your ancestry. But fine enough, they can be a healthy addition to the diet, you know, um, because these are all pre-processed foods or pre-industrial era foods. Um, Then there's the stuff on meal timing. You know, number six, eat twice a day plus a snack. And number seven, observe time restricting eating. So that would be something like, you know, you stop eating after dinner at 7 p.m. and you start again at 7 a.m. You know, these these rules around timing, fine enough. Shoulder shrug. There's nothing magic here. Just cutting down on total quantity. Do you have to do it that way? No, but a lot of these things that are like stop eating after 7 p.m. or don't snack are are just ways that people stop all this mindless eating and snacking that ends up adding up to a lot of calories in the diet. So I feel like a lot of these are fine enough in the sense that they just push people towards eating better quality and quantity. I don't think all the specifics are necessary, but the underlying ideas and principles, yeah, that, that, that's what they're getting people towards. And again, shoulder shrug, fine enough. <laughs> um, I want to ask you next about the the ones maybe we we can take some issue with, but I'm curious. Mm. Number four, be nourished. I don't think you mm. mentioned that. Like, I don't know what that yeah, means. <laughs> so it's a strange rule to me. Yeah, you know, it's really make sure that you get enough of the nutrients we need, and it's like, yeah. yes, that would be good. You know, eat the essential vitamins and minerals, and <laughs> and make sure that we get enough protein for the things. You know, meet meet the nutritional requirements. Yeah, yeah. So again, don't take okay. issue with so, that. That's uh, fine. But I don't. It's also a a pretty obvious one, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it says something, but it says nothing at the same time. Okay. Totally. Um, so, all right. So we went through the sort of the shoulder shrugs or the thumbs up. What about the ones on that list of those nine that maybe you do take issue with? Yeah. It's really number two, which was consume low, but sufficient protein. And then number eight, which is this practice periodic prolonged fasting that I really can't get behind and are really what I would consider different than some of the other diet recommendations that we've talked about before. So the recommended low, but sufficient protein level by Longo is basically less than or up to our recommended dietary allowance or RDA, which is about 0.4 grams per pound. And so he actually gives the range in the book of 0.31 to 0.36 grams of protein per pound of body weight a day. And so this means if somebody weighs 130 pounds, we're looking at like 40 to 47 grams of protein. Just by way of comparison to my 0.7 grams per pound level that I recommend, that person on my recommendations would be eating over double that 91 grams of protein. So obviously don't really agree there. And then this number eight, this prolonged fasting, basically it's twice a year for a period of five days. The recommendation is that people should consume a relatively high calorie fasting mimicking diet, aka FMD, which now there's a product to go along with this called Prolon, where people can buy these pre-made shakes and foods for this five-day, we'll call it a quasi-fast. Of course, there's a $190 a month subscription um, for you to do that. (laughs) Now, I will say in the book, he makes it very clear he doesn't draw direct profit off of these products or even the book sales. He says that goes into funding his research. So that 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 is cool. but still, there's this there's this product to go along with this fast. And Prolon is really marketed towards otherwise healthy individuals for and is marketed as, quote, the ultimate reset 
and renewal for vibrance and vitality and to support cellular health, whatever that means. I mean, this is classic nutrition marketing gobbledygook. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I just I just sort of love the concept. You know, it's here we want you to fast, but now I'm going to sell you the pre-made food product that you should specifically eat during the fast. And I'm going to advertise it as nutrition technology to give you the benefit of fasting without having to fast. I mean, it's almost sort of just marketing genius. in, in my opinion of like, you know, people don't really like fasting because you're hungry, but now I'm going to sell you a product that you can eat while you're fasting, but it's the only product that you can eat while you're fasting. Um, so yeah. So anyway, the, the concept of what you do doing this fasting mim- mimicking diet is basically on day one, you cut down to about 1100 calories. And then on days two through five, it's even less. It's about 800 calories each, each day. And you're supposed to eat these specific foods, mainly veggies and a little bit of protein. And then after these five days of this quasi fast, basically low calorie days, you go back to the longevity diet, which is this plant-based pescatarian diet. Okay. So is there, you know, to, to me, there's a odd contradiction of saying fasting and then eat these foods. So is Correct. this, like, exactly. what's, well, they have to make an argument against like to, to make, you know, to square that circle, but, or, or maybe I just assume that he does if, and if yeah. so, look, what is that? I guess they, I mean, yeah. fasting mimicking, like, okay, it's mimicking yeah. fasting. It's not fasting. I right. guess they got around it there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the idea is that you don't need to go to the extremes of fasting to get the benefit. And I think we're we're going to uncover what the unlock or the secret there is. It's you're cutting calories, but you're all right. You don't need to go to the extreme of not eating anything forever to get the benefits of fasting. We just need you to cut back on calories. They don't phrase it that way. It's that you don't need to go to the extremes of fasting, but you need to have enough nutrients, i.e. be nourished with these vitamins and minerals during your fast. Got it. Okay. So two... Uh, two of the recommendations you don't agree with, low protein recommendations and prolonged fasting. Let's start, let's break down both of those uh, low protein recommendations. What is their rationale for that? Yeah. Yeah. So the thought process is, you know, why do they want this low protein intake? Well, protein intake can increase levels of IGF-1, which is a hormone. And then they say that higher IGF-1 increases your cancer risk. And I counter with like, that's just too simplistic of an explanation for IGF-1 and cancer. So briefly, IGF-1 is a hormone. IGF-1 stands for insulin-like growth factor 1. It's produced by many cells in the body. Most of it's produced in the liver and most of its production is stimulated by growth hormone. Um, And so like the name suggests, IGF-1 has growth promoting effects in virtually every cell of the body, like muscle and bone, but also liver, kidney, on and on and on. And so this is why we have this fear of IGF-1 and, and cancer, because cancer is basically uncontrolled cell growth. And so many cancers have been shown to have improper IGF-1 signaling. And so this is where we develop this fear of IGF-1. But it is, again, a little bit too simplistic, because we have to remember almost like everything that you know, IGF-1 in and of itself is not all bad. You know, if if you want muscle mass increases that we talk about all the time, (laughs) you're going to need IGF-1 to stimulate muscle growth, right? And in fact, resistance training stimulates IGF-1, which which should be no surprise um, because you want muscle growth as a result. But no one thinks, you know, muscle growth is bad and no one thinks, okay, stop resistance training, right? Yet there's an IGF-1 response. Uh, You'll also hear things like dairy and protein intake increases IGF-1, which they do 
But as we mentioned, so does resistance training. And so these studies that look at what happens to IGF-1 levels after eating protein, it's, it's a little bit to me like what happens when people look at studies of what happens to your blood glucose after eating carbs. You know, there can be some natural and normal up and down of levels without necessarily indicating that there's a problem. And that we might be in the realm of normal and healthy and even stimulating muscle math growth, muscle math mass growth without necessarily, you know, developing cancer, just like if your blood glucose goes up and down, doesn't mean that you're insulin resistant and diabetic. And so, you know, the, the point really is, um, besides the fact that increases in IGF-1 can be good or necessary, we just have to be aware and cognizant that short, acute elevations in IGF-1 after a meal or after resistance training are not the same thing as always having an um, elevated baseline level of IGF-1. All right. So you sent me some notes um, about this specifically that we wanted to make sure we hit on um, to explain the, the, the research from um, two points of view. Um, uh, what does the evidence say about IGF-1 and cancer? Yeah. Uh, and then what does the evidence say about protein intake and cancer? So um, let's start with the first one. Uh, IGF-1 and cancer. What does the research actually say about the linkage there? Yeah. Yeah. It's important that we look at both of them, you know, what does the research say about IGF-1 and cancer? And what does the research say about protein intake and cancer as a separate topic? Because there might be the case where protein is implicated in cancer, but it just doesn't work through the IGF-1 mechanism that I discussed. And so that's why it's important to take a look at both independently. So as you mentioned, looking at IGF-1 and cancer. So in 2020, there's this Mendelian randomization study that was looking at IGF-1 and site-specific cancers. And so this is the 2020 um, Larson paper in the show notes. And I don't think we've really talked about Mendelian randomization before. Um, it'd be cool to bring on an expert <laughs> to talk about them, but you guys got me right now, so here we go. And, <laughs> and what Mendelian randomization does is it looks at associations between genes and outcomes. And these studies are really growing in popularity because of the power of big data in recent years. It's not just the accessibility and the completeness of the human genomic data that we have more recently, but also the computing power to be able to put it all together in really meaningful ways. And so a Mendelian randomization study is a way that we can actually mimic randomized controlled trials using observational data, where some of the observational data is our genetic data or your genes. Now I said association, and typically we know association studies as like just looking at the correlations between traits and disease outcomes or markers, but they don't establish a causal link between the two. Like if you were to measure somebody's protein intake and then measure the cancer rates in those populations, the, that, that protein intake, if there's an association, does not prove that protein causes cancer. It just tells us that there's some characteristic about the people eating the higher protein. There's something in there related to the development of cancer. It may be something like the higher protein eaters, they actually are eating more processed meat. And maybe it's other factors in the processed meat, like we talked about with nitrates. Maybe it's that that's more related to the cancer development than just protein in and of itself. And so this is why we always hear that phrase, you know, correlation does not equal causation. And, and these association studies typically don't tell us the cause. But when we look at association and Mendelian randomization studies, they're, they're different because it's you want to think about it as it's like a randomized controlled trial because of the way that we inherit genes. So we inherit genes at random. We receive one of the two copies um, from our parent gene randomly. And so you can think about this as though you're getting randomly assigned a treatment 
in a randomized control trial. And then all of the other things that would be confounding factors, like whether or not the person exercises or whether or not the person has high protein or whether or not the person um, you know, has a, a lot of processed meat in the diet, all of those are also gonna randomly distribute across people who have the gene and who don't have the gene, such that now any association between the gene and the outcome would suggest that the gene has a causal role. So that's a lot of uh, science there, but in this Mendelian randomization study, they looked at 14 different cancers. Um, some of them, the mo more common ones like colon and prostate and breast, but 14 different ones. And they also looked at 416 different genetic markers that we know of that control IGF-1 levels. And they found that there was only a relatively small increased risk of those IGF-1 genes with colon cancer, but not any of the other cancers. And so said another way, based on this study, IGF-1 levels are not responsible for the development of most cancers. And it's only in the case of colon cancer, of course, more research has to confirm these results. There may be some um, uh, implication of IGF-1 levels and that cancer development. And so what would be the application of this knowledge or this finding? This would mean that we could potentially screen people for colon cancer, looking at their IGF-1 le levels. Like maybe every year when you go in and you get your cholesterol measured or your fasting glucose measured, they would also maybe measure your IGF-1 levels. And if it happened to be elevated, they may send those people then on for let's say a colonoscopy for a more formal mm -hmm. colon cancer screening at that time. So to be clear, this isn't saying that IGF-1 is not involved in any way in any cancers. Instead, what it's saying is that IGF-1 levels are not the driver of most cancers. Uh, okay, then the the second one that um, that we wanted to make hit uh, that we wanted to hit on. What does the evidence say about protein intake in cancer? Yeah. So Longo, the author of the longevity diet, is a co-author of a study. Levine is the lead author, and it's in the show notes. But this is the classic association study, and this is looking at, okay, what happens when people eat protein, compare it to their IGF-1 levels, and compare it to who gets cancer or not. And um, what they found was that high protein intake was not associated with an increased risk of death or cancer if the individuals were over 65. There was some association of high protein intakes with increased death and cancer risk between the ages of 50 and 65. They only looked at people 50 and older. So they found this association of higher protein and cancer in this age range of 50 to 65. And this is what they use as their evidence to say, okay, people should eat low protein until they get to 65. And then over 65, they should increase their protein intake. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm a little skeptical of like why it would yeah. flip flop at age 65 um, to all of a sudden we need low to high. But that's what they found. Fine enough. That was their conclusion. We can just continue on in PubMed and see what else we find. <laughs> and so there was, uh, yeah, continue on. <laughs> There's plenty more research to be found. So there's two 2020 papers in the show notes. Both are meta-analyses of association studies between protein consumption and death. And so again, these meta-analyses, they're not just looking at one study, which was like the Longo study I just mentioned, but instead they're pulling together the research from lots of different groups. And this really is more beneficial because it helps us see are there trends across independent researchers. And they don't 
these um, meta-analyses do not find the same conclusions. The first one of these two that I mentioned is the Chi paper. They find that increased total protein showed no clear association with risk of all-cause cardiovascular disease or cancer, or cancer mortality. And then the Nagashi paper in the show notes, they found higher intake of total protein was associated with a lower risk of all-cause mortality. So they don't agree with the Longo paper. And in fact, they, one of them even says that higher protein is better. Mm. Um, you know, these are association studies. They come with all the same issues that we typically talk about with association studies. Correlation does not equal causation. But what's interesting is that their findings are not consistent with Longo's findings, right? And it's also looking at a greater number of studies. Now, I do want to mention that both of these meta-analyses, they were measuring death, not just getting cancer. And I bring this up because many people get cancer and survive. And so a proponent of the longevity diet may argue, well, you know what? You wouldn't get cancer in the first place if you were eating my diet, right? It's, it's really modern medicine that's swooping in and saving people, but all of this could be, potentially be avoided if you eat my diet type of thing. And I would just counter that and say, you know, the whole premise of the longevity diet is, is looking at how long you live. And so certainly death is a relevant marker of interest. Now, if you wanted to get into the weeds of, okay, what increases the risk of just getting cancer, it's going to, I mean, that would be a very long podcast on its own right, because we'd have to be looking at each different cancer individually, as well as each different type of protein from soy to animal to plant-based. And I'm going to tell you, it's kind of all over, all over the place. And really the only place that we see a consistent trend is with the processed or red meat and colon cancer, which we've discussed. And of course, the, the context of all that we have a whole podcast for. So basically, I don't agree that there is evidence to suggest a consistent association between low protein diets and decreasing cancer risk or longevity. And really we have evidence of the contrast, not just the studies I mentioned, but think about it this way. This is what I love for my fitness minded group. We see that muscle mass is associated with longevity mm -hmm. and then things like sarcopenia is associated with mortality. So that natural loss of muscle mass as we age. And again, of course, these are associations and limitations, but we just have to start kind of looking at the whole picture and looking at where we see trends and all of that stuff. And, and really it's people who have, active and vibrant lives and are eating enough protein to support that is where we tend to see more of a longevity outcome than not. Okay. So that was, um, your sort of your arguments against the, uh, low protein element of the longevity diet. The other one we wanted to make sure we hit on was, um, your thoughts, your arguments against the, uh, the prolonged fasting. Uh, and I think yeah. you said it was like a five day remind me of the time frame. Is it like once a year, once a month, what was twice a year? twice a year. Okay. So what are your thoughts on that arguments against that? Yeah. Yeah. So from what I can see, um, Longo has six different clinical trials with humans using the fasting mimicking diet, which, which is pretty cool that he's putting his methods to the test for sure. I appreciate the effort and difficulty of doing clinical research for, um, but the problem is I would say that none of them show that this fasting mimicking diet approach is any different than cutting calories, which we sort of alluded to in earlier in the podcast. And so it's like, yeah, people go on these, this fasting mimicking diet and yeah, they might lose weight or some markers change favorably. Maybe their fasting glucose decreases, maybe their triglycerides decrease. 
But that's exactly what happens when somebody cuts calories as well. And, and one of these studies, um, these clinical trials for the fasting mimicking diet did look at autoimmunity and they found that, you know, there were some quality of life improvements. We actually talked about this in our autoimmune protocol diet podcast, where we have to be cognizant of the idea that when people eat the right quality and quantity, their quality of life can improve in the sense they might feel better, but a disease progression might not change. And so that was sort of the same thing here that, yeah, it's like people might be feeling better, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their autoimmunity has been reversed. Um, so again, I don't see anything in the trials that indicate the fasting mimicking diet is doing something above and beyond cutting calories because they don't actually compare it to a, a diet of similar caloric deficit. They just compare it to kind of a baseline diet of what people are eating. Um, and the other thing about kind of the evidence that he uses for these periods of prolonged fasting, um, this happens in the clinical trials in PubMed, but as well as the evidence in the book, is he often cites animal or microorganism studies, like looking at what happens to mice, looking at what happens to yeast. And he uses this as sort of, I don't know, to bolster his opinion about nutrition. And it's just really important not to extrapolate conclusions from yeast, from mice to animals, um, I'm sorry, from yeast or from mice to humans for a number of reasons. You know, I think what gets confusing is a lot of times when we talk about animal studies, we hear how similar our DNA is. It, it kind of depends on, mm -hmm. on which animal we, we want to talk about. But oftentimes you're going to hear something like, you know, we're, we're like 90% like a, a mouse or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's true. A lot of our DNA does overlap. But one of the things I like to counter with that is between humans, we are 99.9% .9 the same. And, and think about how much variation occurs with just that 0.1%. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, we are a little bit like a mouse in some ways, but obviously we're quite, quite different. And then when we look at humans, how much variation just in terms of, I mean, you could obviously physical characteristics, but also just death, out, disease risk, um, things like how people respond to medication. Think about allergies. Some people are deathly allergic to peanut butter. Other people can eat all of it that they want, right? So even in a species where we're so, so similar, 99.9% .9 of our DNA is the same, we still cannot apply a single diet or a single, you know, medication mm -hmm. or a single treatment for everyone to have the same outcome. And so it's really tempting to think, oh gosh, we're very much like mice. And so this is what happens in mice. And so this is what will happen in humans. And it's, it's just not the case. And there's a pretty cool paper by Pound in the show notes. It talks about a study that was looking at the similarities between what happened with animal data and then when they went to go see if it happened in humans, was it the same outcome? And basically out of the six different scenarios and, and health conditions they looked at, only three of them were the same between humans and uh, mice. Or you could think about it as like a 50-50 shot that it was about, mm -hmm. you know, 50% chance of whether or not what happened in mice would actually be the same as what happened in humans. And they also point out the fact that typically we have issues with the quality of mice studies, things like... Um, randomization don't occur and, and the researchers don't always blind themselves to the treatment such that the quality of the mice data just tends to be poor. And I, I just wanted to point all of that out because, you know, again, he uses the animal data quite often. And it's just a really, um, I don't know if odd's the right word, but it's just so interesting to me because he even acknowledges there's this discordance between animal and human data in the book. He talks about the fact that, you know, when you feed mice um, way less than the calories they need, some huge caloric deficit, like 30 to 40%, yes, they live longer and yes, they don't develop as many tumors, 
But at the same time, he also says in the same paragraph that that type of caloric restriction is not good for humans. Because as we talked about in our fasting episode, when you're restricting calories by that much, you're probably limiting a bunch of nutrients that you need. You probably aren't getting the nutrients that you need for um, your immune system to heal wounds, all these like really basic things. You know, we're not these mice living in germ-free cages that can survive with all of these few nutrients. And so it's just really interesting to me that he uses these animal studies frequently. And again, his PubMed cited work, as well as the book, he acknowledges that we're not animals, but yet it often comes in as, as some of his ways to kind of bolster his opinion and evidence for his diet. And I just, I just don't think it's there. Mm. Do you see, uh, even maybe uh, taking that into account, do you see or have you seen any benefits to prolonged fasting, right? I remember when you were on Chasing Excellence, Ben was talking about (laughs) doing like a three or four day fast and and some of the reasons why he he wanted to do it. I don't think he's done it since then, but uh, but like, are there benefits in your mind uh, or does the research say there are any benefits to a prolonged fasting period, like, like the recommendation of, you know, four or five days? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, if even a quasi fast, you know, these low calorie fasting mimicking diets or a a true fast, however you want to go, if that's how you cut calories overall, great. Um, I think fasting, one of the things that I really like about fasting is, you know, I think we've all overeaten. I I think we've all had a dinner or a weekend where we just kind of ate more than we need. So I think it's okay to counteract that a bit. You know, it's okay for us. You could say, I I think it's more than I think we've all done that. We could be for sure certain. We've all done it. We've all eaten too much at some point. So I think it's okay to have these periods where we don't eat quite as much or like we go through periods of hunger. You know, we're pretty robust. Of course, I'm not talking about true starvation, but you know what I mean? Like it's okay to miss a meal or something like that. But I just really always have to keep hammering that this is not operating in a way that's different from cutting calories. And that's just really my big thing. If you love it for that reason, great. It's not doing anything different. The book, though, implies it is doing something different. He recommends this sort of, you know, fasting mimicking approach twice a year or something like that. I'm going to tell you that doing like 30 to 50 percent caloric deficit for 10 days out of the year for an otherwise healthy individual, and even in a sick individual, is not going to do anything significant. I mean, maybe, 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 if we want to stretch to what a positive outcome could be of these like five-day fasting mimicking diet, maybe that gives somebody the mental strength to know that on their regular diet days, they can pro, you know get through a period of hunger yep. and, and that's okay. Maybe that would be it. But mechanistically, like what is it doing in those five days? It, it it does not have any major health value. Um, you know, and it just drives me a little bit crazy. I could I could imply some really specific protocol. Hey guys, on the first of every month, you know, you're gonna eat this food followed by this food, you're gonna take this supplement, and all of a sudden you're gonna have these health benefits. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It will have it will not move the needle at all. What's more important than these five days twice a year of fasting is what the person is doing on the 355 other days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just too low of a frequency to matter um, in terms of somebody's overall health. And it, again, it's just this like level of um, uh, misapplied precision, I think is the Kelly Starrett phrase I always like to come mm-hmm. back to that. Yeah, it's not really going to move the needle in any meaningful way for somebody. And instead, we just need to look at overall quality and quantity in the long term. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting when you just said that what popped in my head is like, well, yeah, if you just do the math, let's just say Mm -hmm. it's 10 days at 50% of your calories. That's basically not eating for five days, which 
most people aren't interested in doing. But like, if you really think about the actual caloric load that you've just taken out with five days, it's like 10,000 calories, like, like nothing over the course of an entire year. Like that, that when you actually think about the, the number, I, I guess actually what it's, what I'm thinking about is this seems to skip over the argument that it's the calories that matter and not the, like, there's not some magic thing that's happening in your body when you don't eat food for a few days. Totally. And that's what I kind of was looking for in the book. And I have to admit that after a certain number of chapters, I wasn't reading quite as closely as looking at just more of the, the research to back it up. Um, but I was like, where is the explanation that this is just cutting calories? And I couldn't find it. Yeah. And I think it's merely for the same reason that we've talked about before. People like to present something novel because it gets attention. Yep. Uh, last question is, is there like, it's interesting to me, it's called the longevity diet, but it still feels very much like it's predictive. In other words, it's, it feels very much like this is what we think will aid longevity. Mm -hmm. And the challenge of that is like, well, we won't really know until all the people who adhere to it for a certainly long period of time hit 97 or 107 or 117. Yeah. And then we'll know for sure, which of course is like the issue with nutrition in general. Right? Yeah, totally. It's like we, it's all just our best guesses. But this one in particular is kind of, I don't, I don't know that it's ironic, but it's interesting to me that like, there's no way to, there's no way to know that it will work. Totally. Cause there's nobody who's, cause it's, cause what you're asking is like for 40 years, do this particular, and like, that's just not realistic. People aren't, it's very unlikely that somebody's going to do that for that long. Totally. Yeah, totally. And there's a genetic card as well, which he talks about in the book. Like some people are going to live to really old age and only, you know, pop tarts. I don't know if he uses that word, but their, their diet might not follow this one and be yep. fine because of their genetics. Um, yep. but totally a hundred percent agree. I, I think there is something too, because a lot of times the longevity research, they kind of look at what the diets are in the blue zones and they look at these populations mm -hmm. that are living a really long time. Again, there's some really basic tenants that I think are true eat a whole food, most uh, mostly whole food diet, don't overeat on the processed stuff, get exercise, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I think they are going to set you up for the best case scenario for longevity, but you're right. It's gonna take a really, really long time. It's gonna take millennia for us to be able to prove, if ever, what exactly causes longevity. Got it. Okay, so I'm just gonna settle on be nourished. That's gonna be my one. That's gonna be my one. <laughs> good, that's a good one. It's a good I'm one. I'm gonna go with that one. All right, easy. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody out there, for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Thank you for the notes that you send us. Uh, they help us keep going. So please keep coming. Uh, EC and I will be back next week for another episode of the Consistency Project.